Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. We now come to the end of the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple. Today, we will talk about the Bible's last book, the book of Revelation. Now, I will get into this in more detail later on, but at the very top, I will say that the big idea of the book of Revelation is not the moon turning to blood, is not horsemen of the apocalypse, is not plagues, famines, and wars, is not the battle of Armageddon, and is not being able to calculate the year when the world will end. As Acts 1-7 states, we are not trying to figure out times and epochs which the Father has already set. The big idea of the book of Revelation is the glory of Christ. At its core, the book of Revelation is a revealing of what will be from Christ, about Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to those who follow him. At its core, Revelation is about Jesus, and this is fitting since the whole Bible overall points directly to him. Revelation is the revelation of Christ's glory. Now, I will return to this big idea momentarily, but let me just say that on the one hand, I am excited to be studying the Bible's final book with you. It will give us a look down the corridor of time to see where human history ends and to see the consummation of the coming kingdom of God. On the other hand, I begin taking a look at the book of Revelation with extreme caution because we live in a time where there have been countless misunderstandings and misrepresentations of what God actually said in his final revelation to us. God never intended to cause confusion. In fact, the Greek word translated revelation means uncovering or disclosure. God therefore uncovered or disclosed certain truths so that his people would have clarity about features of prophecy, not bewilderment. That leads to an important question. Why is studying Revelation important? Well, studying the Bible is important in general. Studying Revelation is particularly important because how we understand how history unfolds will animate our worldview and how we interact with history. Studying Revelation is important because it is the only prophetic book in the New Testament and it is the only book in the Bible with a promise of blessing attached to reading it. That's not a promise to simply brush over or to take lightly. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Notice what else Jesus says here. He says, heed the things written in Revelation because the time is near. Here, time does not refer to tick-tock time. It refers to time as in seasons or eras. In other words, Jesus is telling us in the opening of Revelation that the next era of God's redemptive plan is close by. We therefore study Revelation in order to discern what to look for when the ultimate end is approaching. Because there is a discrete end to history, we preach Christ now because we do not have forever. We also follow God's warning to be on the alert Matthew 24:42 and live holy obedient lives. 2 Peter 3:14. Revelation 1:1 1, 1 tells us that the book was written to a specific audience and that audience includes those who serve Christ. Therefore, we do not expect Revelation to either be studied or properly comprehended by those who reject Christ. Revelation was written by the apostle John and chapter 1 verse 2 and chapter 1 verse 9 confirm this fact. Revelation is a book that 
is in the canon of scripture, which means it can never be considered a part separate from the whole. In fact, if you were to begin reading the Bible today, Revelation is the wrong place to start. Why? Because Revelation only begins to make sense when you have read the preceding 65 books. Why is that? Because the language and symbols that it uses draws not from an alien source, but from the rest of scripture. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 contain references to the Old Testament. For example, the heavenly scene John describes in Revelation 4.2 is remarkably similar to what the prophet Ezekiel saw of God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 1. Hence, in order to look forward, we must first look back at what God has already said. In order to know what will be new in the future, we must be well versed in the Old Testament. When we look back to look forward, Revelation ceases to be a mysterious enigma. Instead, it becomes clearer and clearer when viewed with the lens of Scripture. Studying Revelation means studying eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy term that refers to study of the last things. It means studying things that will happen at some undetermined point in the future. So, when the average layperson talks about the apocalypse, the antichrist, or the rapture, what they are actually talking about involves eschatology. Of any other book in the Bible, the book of Revelation provides the most details about the last things. The fact that it looks forward in time is validated by Revelation's own claims to be prophetic. For scripture references, see chapter 1 verse 3, 22-7, 22.10, and 22.18-19. Now, are there different schools of thought about how to interpret the book of Revelation? There are, but I will not focus my attention on juxtaposing different schools of prophetic interpretation here. These are informed debates to have, but arguments to have in the basement of a church, not the main sanctuary. Whatever a person discerns about Revelation, that does not change what God has already said in the 65 books that precede it. And what God has already said from Genesis through Jude is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and a person must have faith in him to be saved. A Bible student can therefore miss the mark and misinterpret many of the prophecies contained in Revelation, but that will not change the core of the gospel, that the only way a sinner gets right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. People can get many things wrong about Revelation, but as long as they are right with Jesus, then their final destination is secure. Believe it or not, when talking about different schools of prophetic interpretation of Revelation, the book of Genesis helps us tremendously. How so? Because Genesis contains the only other narrative in the Bible where a catastrophic global devastation ended the world as it was. That devastation was the Great Flood in Genesis 6-7. And what happened there? There was a time on earth where things got worse and worse until a day of judgment was set by God. God told Noah to build an ark, and subsequently, only those who entered the ark were spared. It did not matter if people disagreed on the color of the ark, the size of the planks, where the ark was, or when the rains would fall. What saved Noah and his family from the apocalypse was if they were in the ark or not. So, if you are in Christ and believe in the Son of God, then whatever will happen in the end, ultimately you will only be safe in Christ, your vessel of refuge. Thus, the only legitimate question to ask is, are you in the ark or are you out? Are you in Christ or not? So Revelation tells us about what will happen in the end. So how does the world end? How does the Bible finish? 
The answer is, with God in complete and total control. Don't get me wrong, God never lost control, but when you look at the madness in the world around you, it may seem as if things have gotten out of control. But stagger not, because in the end, God is victorious. Satan loses. Evil is defeated. Darkness falls. Christ wins. Consequently, God is bringing everything in the universe together at a predestined time when the Lord Jesus Christ will reign upon an earthly throne. Not a heavenly throne, but an earthly throne. The end of history is already written, and on the last page, Jesus is king over all. Although from time to time life may feel discouraging, when you are on the side of Christ, all of your sorrow will marvelously turn into joy because Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord now, and history ends with Christ as King forever. This neatly connects to what I said at the beginning in that the big idea of the book of Revelation is the glory of Christ. Revelation not only ends in paradise with a glorified Christ ruling over the universe, it also reveals God having fulfilled every promise that he made to Christ. So, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, Paul writes the following, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And guess what? In the end, that's exactly what the text describes. It gives a vision of the glorious future where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, a key feature of eternal paradise is the redeemed praising and glorifying Jesus with reverent worship continually. In the Gospels, we learned about the humiliation of Christ, where he was despised, rejected, and crucified. In Revelation, he is seen as the cosmic king and great high priest in charge of his church. The Bible's final book therefore gives us many reasons to rejoice now that we know what God has in store for the elect. Revelation 5.5 says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And what God has in store for the elect is far better than you could ever imagine in this world. Revelation 24, 1-4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. Now that I've introduced the book of Revelation and discussed its big idea, I will dive into the individual chapters in more detail. To give everyone a brief summary of the book overall, in chapter 1 we read about the glorified Christ. In chapters 2 and 3 we read about the church. In chapters 4 to 5 we read about John's vision of the church in heaven. Then, chapters 6 to 18 describe the tribulation, or seven years of distress, where God inflicts a series of judgments on the world. In chapters 19 to 20, Christ returns to earth in his second coming and establishes an earthly kingdom. 
Next, the text describes the great white throne judgment where the lost are judged. The last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, provide a glimpse as to what eternity with God will look like. In essence, all of the elect dwell in heavenly paradise forever with God here on earth. The Bible therefore ends with the best news you will ever hear. The first two verses of Revelation read as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. As the last verse I just read communicates, Revelation is largely a function of what the Apostle John saw in visions while in the Spirit. There were many other apocalyptic visionaries in the Bible, including Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. John's visions are obviously different than his predecessors, but it's the same God who revealed visions to all of these men. When looking forward in the corridor of time, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah all literally saw something, but that something was a symbol that represented reality. In Daniel chapter 7, for example, the prophet literally sees a vision of four beasts, and each of those beasts represented a real historical kingdom. We therefore follow the same rule for John's apocalyptic visions. When we read the Bible in general, we always interpret it according to the literal sense of the text. So, unless John specifies otherwise, we read the text literally, realizing that John saw literal things that were symbols that dealt with reality. Revelation itself validates this method of interpretation. For example, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, John sees the glorified Christ in heaven, and he holds seven stars in his right hand. Jesus then clarifies that the seven stars represented the messengers of the seven churches. So in his vision, John sees something, and he literally describes to us what he saw. What he sees is symbolic of something concrete in reality. The seven stars symbolize real messengers to real churches. Furthermore, it is important to note that symbols always point to a reality greater than the symbol. The reality is always more powerful, just like America is greater than its flag, and Jesus is greater than a picture of a cross. In Revelation chapter 1, John clarifies in the first eight verses that the message he is relaying came from the Trinity and was delivered by an angel to him. By design, this message reveals Christ's full glory and tells the servants of Christ things which will take place. In Revelation 1, 12-20, John has the Patmos vision where he sees Christ in his present glory and Lord of the Church. This was certainly reassuring news to the first century church because after the ascension of Christ, a thinking Christian could have asked, Hey, where did Jesus go exactly? Or, Hey, what is Jesus doing right now? The answer to both of these questions is found right here in Revelation chapter 1. The answer is that Jesus is presently ruling over his church in active ministry. Thus, when he ascended, he neither abandoned his promises, nor did he abandon his people. In Revelation 1 verses 13 to 20, John says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades." Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This text reveals that the glorified one is the capital L light, and his church is a lampstand, or a visible, lowercase l light, here on earth. John says that when he saw Christ, he fell at his feet like a dead man. This is the common biblical response of anyone who has a legitimate encounter with God. They fall on their faces with dread, overwhelmed by the Lord's holiness, might, majesty, and power. This is why whenever my young son gets afraid at night and tells me things like, Daddy, I'm scared, I respond by reading him this passage from Revelation. I tell him, Don't you know Jesus is watching over you? My son will then say something like, Yes, Daddy, I know, but Jesus is very kind. I then say, Yes, son, he is, but he also has fire in his eyes and swords that come out of his mouth. Nothing you are afraid of stands a chance against mighty King Jesus. That's usually when my son's eyes light up and all the worry floats away. In Revelation 1.19, Christ commands John to write what he saw, what he sees, and what he will see. This gives us structure for the rest of the book as chapter 1 tells us what John saw, chapters 2 and 3 tell us what John sees, and chapters 4 to 22 tell us what is to come. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus sends messages to seven churches. These were literal messages to real churches of John's day, and you can in fact visit the ruins of ancient cities like Ephesus to see where these churches actually existed. But just because these messages were given to a unique historical church does not mean they lack relevance for us now. After all, these messages are in the canon of scripture, which means they are profitable to us. 2 Timothy 3.16. Using the same logic, there are many other books in the New Testament that were messages written specifically to a unique historical church. Examples would be the letters to the Corinthians and the letter to the Colossians. Truly, those letters are still profitable to us and give us crucial insights into the present life of the church and Christian experience. So, when we read the seven messages to seven churches in Revelation 2-3, to we see that they are always relevant because throughout time, there have always been churches that resemble the distinct personalities described. So while these messages did carry a specific message for a specific people in a specific place and time, they also speak to all people everywhere all the time, just like the Bible itself. As Jesus says at the end of each message, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Revelation 2, 2-7, the message is to the church at Ephesus. The Ephesian church had their head in the right place, but their hearts were not in the game. The Ephesian church got their doctrine right, and they faithfully taught the truth of the Word of God. 
The problem was they forgot their first love, who was Jesus. The fire in their hearts had grown cold, so there was a lack of a warm flame. Jesus warns this church to repent, or else he is coming to remove their lampstand. In Revelation 2, the message is to the church at Smyrna. Remarkably, this church is not rebuked by Christ at all. Jesus notes that he is aware of the church's tribulation and poverty, and even remarks that more tribulation is to come. He ends his message by comforting the faithful that those who endure till the end will receive the crown of life. In Revelation 2, 12-17, the message is to the church at Pergamum. Jesus commends this church for not denying the faith, but then rebukes them for being deluded by false teaching which leads to immorality. This church compromised with worldliness and became a church of mixture. God's message is to repent. In Revelation 2, 18-29, the message is to the church at Thyatira. This is the longest message. The church at Thyatira is celebrated for its faith, love, service, and perseverance, but is condemned for the toleration of a woman called Jezebel, a prophetess. Basically, Jezebel entices the people astray into sin and paganism. God fiercely warns the church that he will destroy all the progeny of Jezebel unless they repent. He commands purity in his church and warns that if the church does not separate themselves from the harlot, they too will be judged. In Revelation 3, 1-6, the message is to the church at Sardis. The issue with this church was not what they were doing, it's what they were not doing. Christ calls them dead and commands them to wake up because they are asleep. Sleepiness is synonymous with no spiritual life, as in no fruit, no growth, no productivity. Christ commands this church to repent and warns that if they are asleep when he comes, they will miss him. In Revelation 3, 7-13, the message is to the church at Philadelphia. This is the other church that Christ has nothing negative to say about. Jesus says he has put before them an open door which no one can shut. He remarks that this church has little power, but they have faithfully kept his word and have not denied the Lord's name. It is very important to notice that although the Philadelphian church has little power, this did not take away from their usefulness to the Lord. Christ also says something very interesting to this church. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus ends his message with encouragement, saying that he is coming quickly and to hold fast to what they have. In Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, the final message is to the church at Laodicea. This church was materially rich, but spiritually poor. God rebukes them because they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. They did not know God, but professed to be wise. They were spiritually blind, but professed to have vision. They may have said they followed Christ, but that confession was empty. Jesus tells this church that he reproves those whom he loves, and he commands this church to repent. Now that you have heard all seven messages, have you figured out which message applies the best to your local church? Perhaps yes, perhaps no. Regardless, a crucial thing to understand for modern Christians in the West is that Jesus had no rebukes for two churches, the church at Smyrna and at Philadelphia. Smyrna was oppressed and poor. Philadelphia had little power. 
So, according to Jesus in Revelation, the most genuine and faithful churches were burdened, undergoing persecution, small and lacked power. So where did the idea come from that a successful church necessarily equals large numbers, money, power, prestige, and visibility? Where did we get the idea that those churches were necessarily godly churches? That idea did not come from the Bible. Hence, as Jesus himself said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When the messages to the seven churches ends, so does Revelation chapter 3. Everything from chapter 4 onward now happens in the future. In chapter 4, John sees a scene in heaven. He sees the throne room of God, which is a place of indescribable beauty and constant worship of the Creator. In chapter 5, we are still in heaven. Revelation 5 verses 1 to 5 says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. What is so remarkable about the scene is that John is seeing heaven, and even in heaven, the only person worthy to open the scroll is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. In antiquity, the symbol of a sealed scroll would be well understood. In Roman times, a person would seal their will with seven seals to prohibit tampering until the appropriate time. Subsequently, Jesus is the one who opens the seals, and the breaking of the seals is very important. Why? Because this sets off a chain reaction that ends in Christ reclaiming kingship of the cosmos. Again, the big idea of revelation is the glory of Christ, so when Christ opens the first seal, he does so in glory. When the process started by breaking of the first seal is complete, Jesus will return to earth in splendor, and glory. But before we get to the end of glory, first comes the tribulation. The tribulation refers to a seven-year period at the end of time that is consumed with the wrath and judgment of God. The tribulation begins with the breaking of the first seal and ends with the second coming of Christ. Now to make sure you are clear on terms, you may have heard of the great tribulation which is not synonymous with the tribulation. Jesus is the one who coined the term great tribulation and this refers to the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The great tribulation is great because the wrath of God will greatly intensify. The start of the Great Tribulation will be marked by the unveiling of the Antichrist and will also end with the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24 verses 15 to 30. So, the first seal opening begins the Tribulation detailed in Revelation chapters 6 to 18. Seven seals are followed by seven trumpets, which are followed by seven bowls. Each step in this 21-part process unleashes a new catastrophe on earth, including war, famine, plagues, earthquakes, death, and a host of cosmological anomalies. When lay people think about the horrors of the end, they are most likely thinking about the great catastrophes of the tribulation.
What's fascinating is what John tells us at the end of chapter 9. There, he sees that in the tribulation, there will be many survivors who, in spite of the fact that the world is literally falling apart, they still do not repent. Many will even acknowledge that it is God's wrath being poured out, but they turn even farther away from Him, harden their hearts, and worship demons. Accordingly, John says in chapter 18, verse 2, that during the tribulation, life is primarily characterized by demonic forces running rampant. It is a world that despises God and is animated by a worldview that is against Christ. The final wrath is the seventh bowl. When that bowl is poured out, the earth will experience the most powerful earthquake in history. This earthquake causes Jerusalem to be split into three, all islands disappear, and mountains vanish. Revelation 19 is where Christ victoriously returns to earth in his second coming. As Zechariah 14.4 states, when Jesus does return, he will do so in the same place that he ascended, at the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Now, before I move on to the end of Revelation, there is a big theme that I want to talk about. That theme is more properly a person who is the Antichrist. So who is this person? Well, it's above my spiritual pay grade to give you a precise identification, but the Bible does give us plenty of information. The term Antichrist comes from a Greek term, Antichristos. This refers to someone who is not only against Christ, but who also seeks to take the place of Christ. Whichever way you see it, they are always ante Christos. The Antichrist is given the fullest description in Revelation 13 verses 1 to 10. That's not to say that this is the first time the Antichrist is mentioned in the Bible. Daniel alludes to the Antichrist in Daniel 7.25, 8.24-25, and 11.36-45. Paul talks about him in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 11. The Apostle John alluded that an Antichrist is coming in 1 John 2.18. Here in Revelation, John identifies the Antichrist as the beast in Revelation 11.7. Just to make sure we are all on the same page, when the Apostle Paul talks about the man of lawlessness or the man of sin, when the Apostle John talks about the beast, they are all referring to one in the same person, the Antichrist. The Antichrist merely amounts to Satan's pathetic attempt to thwart God's plan. Satan knows for sure that Christ is definitely coming back to earth as the glorified king. So, the devil raises up an Antichrist who will presumably stop Jesus in his tracks and win the battle for earth for Satan. It goes without saying that the devil's plan will fail miserably. The Antichrist will come to power during the second half of the tribulation. The tribulation is seven years, so he will rise to power in the last three and a half years. Although the Antichrist will be a demon-possessed man and an arrogant blasphemer, the world will adore him. He will be so popular and liked, people will even attribute deity to him. Hence, believers ought not to think that everything about the Antichrist will appear obviously evil. Worshipping the Antichrist may likely be made to be beautiful and the culturally acceptable thing to do. As Revelation 13.4 says, the world will affectionately say, Who is like the beast who is able to wage war with him? Truly, the Antichrist will be the world's darling and global hero. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the Apostle Paul says that the Antichrist will not come before apostasy comes first. 
He then says in verses 3 to 4, The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So what makes the Antichrist the Antichrist? He is a false object of worship. But more than that, he is a false object of worship that will deceive people on a global scale and lure people into Satanism. The Antichrist will be Satan's puppet mouthpiece, so when the world worships the Antichrist, they are really worshiping the devil. This was always the devil's plan to usurp God. The Antichrist will be a powerful, influential world leader who will use his power to wage war against believers. All over the world, believers in Christ will be killed because of their faith. Although the Antichrist may take their bodies, he will not take their faith. The Antichrist will not work alone. There is a false prophet who performs demonically powered signs and wonders to lead people to worship the Antichrist. The false prophet is also referred to as the second beast in Revelation 13 verses 11 to 18. Essentially, the false prophet will be the Antichrist's partner in order to intensify the deception of the world. This false prophet will not be such an overt political and military power as the Antichrist. Rather, the false prophet will look like a lamb but speak like a dragon. He will set up a speaking image of the beast and order all those who do not worship it to be killed. The false prophet also causes all people to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. This mark enables a person to buy or sell goods, so without it, they will be shut out of the global economic system. Revelation 13.7 says, The mark of the beast either is the name of the beast or the number of his name. The Holy Trinity consists of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The unholy trinity consists of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. While the true church is called the Bride of Christ, the false church is called the Harlot. During the Great Tribulation, the beast and the harlot will work in concert, promoting lies and deceptions. Once the tribulation is over, then comes the really good news. In Revelation 19:11-21, Christ comes back. Jesus returns with the redeemed in heaven in order to establish his kingdom on earth. This return causes the beast and the false prophet to be destroyed. Eventually, Christ's return sets up the battle of Armageddon and the elimination of Satan's armies. Truly, the second coming will not be a quiet, secret event. The text tells us that when Christ returns, the world will unmistakably know it because every eye will see him and it will be obvious to all humanity. The Bible ends in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. There, John describes God's new heaven and new earth. It's a place devoid of suffering, pain, tears, or sorrow, and saturated with love, joy, peace, and contentment. It is all of those things because the elect enjoy eternity face-to-face -face with God himself. Paradise will be paradise because we will have the best there is forever. We will have Jesus himself. In this new heaven and earth, there will be no sea, nor will there be any sun, because the radiance of God will illuminate the world. There will be a new city of Jerusalem on a great and high mountain. This city will be made of translucent pure gold, and its walls will have a foundation of precious stones. 
From the city, a river will flow, and on each side of the river will be a tree of life. In essence, in the end, God will take us back to paradise, not in a garden, but in a city. Because of Christ, this is a city in which there is never a risk of falling into sin, because creation once again will be a sinless perfection forever. Our citizenship will never be revoked from the heavenly Jerusalem. The angel ends his message to John in Revelation 22, verses 10 to 21. He warns not to seal the prophecies of Revelation because the time is near. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 30, when Jesus comes back, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and when everyone is saying peace and safety, that is when destruction will come. The angel tells John that whatever you are when you enter eternity is what you will be for eternity. This is why we must preach Christ and teach the gospel right now, because right now counts forever. I will close by reading the Bible's final words, Revelation 22, 12-21. Christ is the one who begins speaking. The text says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.